you, Dan. Uh, so good to be together today. If you have your Bibles, um, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Um, it's that time of the year again uh, where Americans, where we focus a lot of time and energy on decorating and gearing up for the, for the holidays. It's, it's that season of dusting off our old storage containers and searching for Thanksgiving and Christmas decorations and, and winter clothes. Um, we're writing up lists of what gifts to purchase um, loved ones, and we're creating a warm home for gathering with friends and with family, and I absolutely love this type, this time of year. Even outside right now, it's, it's a little chilly, it's a little cloudy, uh, it gets darker earlier. I absolutely love this time of year, but it's no surprise to us that um, November and December can be a little overwhelming. One of the reasons um, for this is the fact that our culture spends and buys a lot of stuff in November and December. And I was trying to think this past week, imagine like how much money I would save if I didn't have to spend any money in November and December. My kids were born in November and December. And with all the parties and holidays and gifts and just getting caught up in, in uh, some fun things, but not necessarily important things, just focusing on the gifts, we can tend just to be overwhelmed. And today I want to talk about money and possessions. It's not a, a popular topic, um, and uh, often... Sometimes, at least for me, I've, I've heard some, some talks before, I've been in conversations before where um, the topic of money and possessions has been kind of shame-based. I've kind of felt guilty with like, ah, oh, maybe I shouldn't have spent that, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe you've also experienced shame and guilt when it comes to money and possessions. But it's actually a really good thing for us to talk about. It's helpful for us to talk about. It's helpful in our spiritual lives. And it shouldn't be a surprise that the Bible talks a lot about money and our stuff. I was reminded uh, this week that over 500 verses in the Bible talk about faith and hope, yet over 2,000 verses relate to money and possessions. Six out of the 49 parables, which are stories told to illustrate a truth, and approximately one out of every six verses in the Gospels relate to money. So whenever we see repetition, things repeated over and over again in the Bible, it's like a, fla a, uh, a flashing light. It's supposed to get our attention. Repetition communicates priority. And it's so clear in the Bible that it talks a lot about money and possessions, and so we should pay attention to it. But why does the Bible talk so much about this? Why does money matter? As we search the scriptures and as we read through them, we will soon find out that there's a direct connection between our faith and our finances. There's a direct connection between our trust and our treasures, and so how we handle money and think about money affects our spiritual health and development. Our attitudes towards money and possession is closely tied with our sanctification process, becoming more and more like Jesus. The evangelist Billy Graham once said, if, if a person gets their attitude towards money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in their life. And yet many Christians, some even unaware separate faith and their money. And some just join the race of acquiring more and more and more. And so what is your attitude concerning money and possessions? We all come from different backgrounds, different experiences. And so today we're just going to walk through this together. We're going to allow God to meet us in this text. 
and to see how we can grow in our love for him. So will you pray with me, and then we'll, we'll jump into this text and we'll read together. Lord, I just, uh, um, Lord, pray that you will, you will teach us in every season, especially in this season, Lord. Um, Lord, how to make much of your son Jesus, to take what we've been given and to be a blessing to others. Lord, I just pray that you will speak through us through this text. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. First Timothy 6, 6 through 10 says this. Read with me. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So the Bible talks a lot about money and possessions, but our culture, we talk and we, we deal with money and possessions on a regular basis. I was looking at some statistics, some sobering statistics um, this past week, and I was reading that the average American home <laughs> has 300,000 items. Whoa, that's a lot. Can you imagine a person counting that? He's like going through the Legos, like just one, two, three, 300,000 items. 23% of adults pay late fees on bills because, you guessed it, they lose them. They have late charges because they just can't find their bills. 25% of people with two-car garages keep so much stuff in their garage that they can't even park a car in it. Tons of clutter and stuff, yeah. Raise your hand if you have a one-car garage. Raise your hand if you have a two. Raise your hand if you have a three. We have a bunch of clutter and stuff. 32% only have room for one car. Americans spend about $1.2 trillion a year on non-essential items on living with extra luxuries that they don't necessarily need. The average American home has tripled in size over the last 50 years. And the list goes on and on and on. One author writes this, in every time in cultures, believers have to confront the difficulty, the difficulty of living in Christian societies where money was a means of selfishness, gain, power, and manipulation. Not that it's always that means, but it can often lead to those things. We see this all around us. We see this in the church. We see this in our communities. We see this in the schools, a lack of financial education. We see high debt, low savings, low givings. We, pe- we see people working more, trying to earn more, spending more. And so money and possessions has become the measure of everything. And yet it's not making us happier. The big idea as we focus in on this text, if we want to grow in a relationship with God, we need to understand what the Bible says about money. And this, this passage is going to tell us everything, but it, it should serve as a reminder to us who God is, who we are, and how we are, are supposed to live. Today is a very powerful text. Next week, we'll go back a few verses. We jumped ahead to see how, we'll go back to see how Paul challenges the false idea that godliness is a way to material gain. The thought that right living leads to riches. And we'll see later on how Paul specifically talks to those who are wealthy, those who are rich in verse 17 through 19. But today, we're going to be focusing on those who desire riches, those who desire riches. This desire 
of riches can be a trap. So the main question we want to tackle is how do we escape the trap of loving money over loving God? How do we escape the trap, the snare of loving money over loving God? So I want to go over five things. The first is this, godliness, contentment, eternity, simplicity, and generosity. How to escape the, the trap of loving, loving money over loving God. The first, godliness, trusting God and the gospel above all else in how we act and how we live. Godliness, Christ-likeness. Paul, having just warned Timothy about those who think godliness is a means to financial gain, he writes this in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Rather than wealth being of great gain, the goal of life, Paul focuses on godliness with contentment as great gain. What is godliness? It can be defined as this, a proper response to the things of God that in turn produce right behavior or right living. And so we can see how do we see uh, godliness on display? Well, we can look at ourselves and say, what are the good things that we, we've done? Maybe that's godliness. We can look to others and see what are the good things that other people have done to try to understand godliness. But the answer is to look to Jesus, the divine embodiment of godliness. First John, John 1, it says, the word became flesh. God, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 1 says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Living godly life begins by learning and living out the word of God and the ways of Jesus. Godliness or Christ-likeness is treasuring God and the gospel above all else in how we live. And so Paul in verse 6 acknowledges that godliness, Christ-likeness, is a means of great gain. Godliness, our spiritual lives, um, our spiritual life is lasting gain versus temporal gain of money and possession. Godliness is Christ-centered, God-focused life versus ungodliness is self-centered, self-focused life. If most people were asked if they were to have one wish, what would it be? They'd be asking probably not for godliness. They probably wouldn't be asking for contentment. They'd be probably striving after money or some type of possession as if money was the ultimate goal, as if money ultimately satisfies. But godliness, Christ-likeness will produce will be produced by treasuring God and the gospel above all else. How do we escape loving money over loving God? First thing is godliness, Christ-likeness. The second is this, contentment. Second is contentment, understanding our inner spiritual wealthiness. Now, there's a, there's a big difference between just regular contentment and Christian contentment. Regular contentment is without Jesus, but Christian contentment is with Jesus. One author writes this to communicate this idea. Contentment is focused on, on inner self-sufficiency, the ability to be sufficient on one's own, independent of circumstances, while Christian contentment, which is also independent of external circumstances, does not rest on one's own self-sufficiency, but on the sufficiency of Christ. Paul says it best in Philippians 4, 11, says this, for I have learned, Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have been brought low and I know how to, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's a difference just between regular contentment 
and Christian contentment. Both are independent of circumstances, but Christian contentment, having Christ who strengthens us, is the only contentment that truly lasts. We need God. Philippians 4 claims, Paul claims that in whatever situation that he can be content through Christ. Are you content? What are the areas in your life where you're feeling discontent? Do you believe that godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment? And it's so easy to focus on what we lack rather than recognizing what we have been given in Christ. When I, when I was younger, someone gave me this little bookmark and it had who you are in Christ and it had all the verses and they said, throw it in your Bible and go over that and it didn't really mean a lot to me when I was younger. And then recently, I've just been, the last five, ten years, been really loving those verses of who I am in Christ, who we are in Christ, that we are forgiven, accepted, loved, worthy, valued, that we are free, that we are gifted. So this idea of practicing Christ-exalting contentment. I might have shared this story with you before, but um, I, in college, uh, before college, uh, I went to community college and then I went on to, to finish out in a four-year, but I was trying to think, like, what are, what are my goals in life? Um, as a young man, and so I created five of them. The first was this, pick a degree. What do I want to study? Graduate from college, get a job, get married, have kids. That was it. That was, that was my top five. I didn't go beyond that. And I soon picked a degree, studied biblical and theological studies, graduated from Biola. I, I got a job as a high school pastor in San Diego. I got married to my beautiful bride, we started having kids, and all of a sudden I just kind of sat there, and I felt a, there was a moment a few years back where I just kind of felt empty. I became anxious and worried. I wasn't satisfied with, with the future. All my goals kind of came true, and I was very thankful for them, but I was just asking God, I'm like, what else? Like, I, I accomplished all of them. I need to have more. And it was in that moment of just praying with the Lord that I remembered two things. First, I remembered all that I have in Jesus, apart from any gift that he has given me, that he is the best news. And second, I remember this that really changed um, how, I, how I think of things. I remember to enjoy the good gifts that God has given me, that the dreams that do come true in our lives, the, the things that God, the good gifts that he gives us, we can continue to dream and continue to strive and continue to enjoy those. We don't have to just go over endless chases of more and more and more. We can be content. Setting goals is a good thing, but if we just continue to set more and more goals and we don't actually focus in and be content and satisfied with what God has given us, um, it's hard to um, kind of focus on things. And so do you want to be content? Practice Christ's exalting contentment. Count your blessings. Being content changes everything. So how do we escape the trap of loving money over loving God, godliness, contentment? The third is this, eternity. Paul gives an internal perspective on how to be content in verse 7. Read with me. It says this, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. We cannot take anything out of the world. And when I was reading through this this, this week, I was just recognizing two things, that our, that our stuff is a gift. The things that we have are gifts. And also, that God is the owner of those gifts. He is the owner of everything. And so as we see things as gifts, and as we recognize that God is the owner, we're, we're freely able to, to give. And a, a little side note, just I've been thinking this week and just thinking through how we are so privileged to have so many things, m most of us in this room. 
I have connections with you guys. I know that God has just blessed us. Some of us might be struggling. Maybe we don't have a job or finances are tight. But even some of the things that we don't really consider as um, necessary for us, maybe it's an extra vehicle that's sitting in the car, or maybe it's um, extra clothing that just are there, that, that some of these things that we have extras of are real blessings to other people. I can think through, um, my friend gave my other friend a car when he was at rock bottom, able to uh, um, allow my friend to, to get a job and to get back on his feet. There's just this extra car lane around that he gave, and it changed everything. Some of the things that we have, the duplicates of what we have, those are so important to other people, and so let's just be freely able to give that away, recognize that our stuff is a gift, and recognize God as our owner. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, prior to this verse, it says this, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come for the present life and also for the life to come. For we brought in verse 7, nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. Christ-likeness has value now and in eternity. And many of, of us have heard this before. When a rich person passes away, um, what do they leave behind? They leave all of it. They leave everything. We cannot take our stuff with us. Job, in Job chapter 1, says this, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That pairs really well with verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of the world. The idea that money has temporal value for some things, but godliness, Christ-likeness, has eternal value for all things. Believing that money and possessions will last is like building a sandcastle next to the ocean. It's not going to last. Can you imagine someone just building a sandcastle with their family, with their kids, and all of a sudden being like, hey, I'm tired, I'm going to finish the sandcastle tomorrow. It's not going to happen. It doesn't last. Matthew 6 talks about not laying up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where nor thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This reminder that the things on earth are unavailable in eternity. This idea that everything on this planet is corruptible. Everything on this planet is decaying. And so we focus on our future life with Christ now and forever. We can't take anything with us. Paul expands in this part of 1 Timothy this discussion of greed. We can't take anything with us, and yet we're so prone to hold things and to keep things as if they last. Greed, this intense desire for something more, whether it's wealth or power or food, greediness does not produce contentment. Material gain or wealth is insignificant compared to the wealth of knowing God and being with him in heaven. So growing up, I always, I always heard people say, hey, Joe, you need a, grew up in the church, you need a, a heavenly perspective. You need an eternal perspective. Think about heaven. So I remember just thinking about heaven. I'm like, heaven, I'm gonna think about it all the time. And I recognize that it's not just thinking about heaven, a place, but it's thinking about Jesus, the, the, the person who's gonna be with us in heaven. Heaven is more than just a place. It's about Jesus. And so I began not just thinking about heaven, but thinking about, thinking about being with Jesus. 
we need not just a heavenly perspective, we need an eternal life perspective with our creator, God. John Edwards um, writes this, and it's just wonderfully, wonderfully written. It says this, God is the highest goal of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the, com- or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. They are but streams, but God is the fountain. They are but drops, but God is the ocean. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and our true happiness? God. We want to escape the, the love of money of our loving God. We focus on godliness, Christ-likeness, contentment, eternity. And, and the fourth is this, simplicity. Simplicity. Living a simple life with contentment for our basic needs. Follow with me in verse 8. Paul writes, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I think this also assumes and, and includes food and water and clothing and shelter. With these we will be content. In other words, we should be content with just food and covering. If we have Jesus and our basic needs are meant, are, are met, is that, is that enough for us? Or are we longing for more to satisfy us? I've had the privilege of, of taking a lot of groups to Tijuana throughout the years. I've been going since I was a kid, and uh, I've been taking a, a lot of groups, and I've, I've always loved um, just uh, hanging out with the people in Tijuana and serving the poor, the poor that are there. And uh, everybody that goes there for the first time always leaves with the same, with the same question. They, they say, how are they so content? We're building homes, we're, we're, we're giving clothes, we're... we're um, giving baths to um, the kids and, and uh, providing for just some of the basic needs. And, and they walk away and just say, how are they so content? You know, living in, in Orange County will always affect the way we think. It will affect the way we think of what we have and the way we think is, is what we have enough. And it affects me living here as well. If you think through like what I was talking about, what, what were my goals? What were your goals that you've accomplished? Mine were get a degree, graduate, get a job, get married, have kids. I could have continued just to keep after more and more. The next thing would be buy a house. <laughs> in California in 2020, a pastor's salary, probably not a good chance, but I could have continued just my list and striving after more and more. And even when I think about wanting more, I always recognize, even right now in this season, I have a job. I know that some people are struggling and don't have one. There's an idea that there's always someone that will have less than you, and there's always someone that will have more than you on this earth. So what are we called to do? We're called to help those who are poor and to not envy those who are rich. We should be content with food and covering and some of you might be thinking, that's not true, Joe. I need, I need more than just, just the basics. I need, I need more. And here, here's a fun example. One of, my, one of my favorite things to do is to go camping. Um, from going to Yosemite, a beautiful place, or just going to the desert where it's just, it's just flat and there's nothing there. I love camping. 
If I have food and water and I have clothing and a tent, I'm good. I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm content. And some of you sitting here or watching online might be saying, hey, Joe, like, I, I enjoy camping too. Um, but if you have um, a, a tent that has four wheels, a queen-size bed, and a bathroom, that's not camping. <laughs> that's just called glamping. You may be looking through your window at people camping, but that's not you. When you think about just maybe sitting in front of a fire in nature and you don't bring any of your luxuries with you, you can find contentment. Maybe some of you are sitting there and you're like, I do not camp, Joe. Never have, never will. I've tried it once and I'm never going to do that again. How do I find contentment? Take off your shoes, walk in some grass, walk through the rain, drink a cup of coffee, and pray. You'll find contentment pretty easily. Contentment is not hard to find especially for the Christian. A practical way to live in contentment is the willingness to be satisfied with our basic needs, to live simply, to practice simplicity. I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe for some of us, us, it's just donating some of the things that we have. Maybe for for some of us, it's uh, getting rid of some clutter, selling some stuff, just simplifying our lives. There's tons of ideas out there on how to live a simple life. There's so many books. But when we start doing this in our lives, we need to make sure that our end result is a love for God and a love for others, and not just to look good or to feel good. And it's a struggle for me, living simple. It is. When when a man and I got married, um, both of our parents basically took everything that we that we owned, all of our drawings, all of our trophies, all of our toys, and they basically just give us all these bins filled with stuff. And then we have these attachments to these things, right? I don't want to throw them away. About a month ago, I threw away all my childhood trophies. The things that I worked so hard for are now just trash. What are we holding on to? Is it hard for you as well to live a simple life? I don't know about you, but I I constantly live in the if only. If only I owned a home, if only I didn't have so much student loans, if only I had a little bit more money, then things would start being more content in my life. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. How do we escape the trap of loving money over loving God? Godliness, Christ-likeness, contentment, focus on eternity, simplicity. And the fifth is this, generosity. Generosity. Living a life of generosity, recognizing the dangers of desiring money, which includes envy and greed. Do you know that generosity is the enemy of greed? Generosity is the enemy of greed. Verse 9, Paul with me. But those who desire to be rich, that who's, that's who Paul is speaking to right now. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So what Paul is not saying here, 
Um, what he is not focusing on here when he says those who desire to be rich and those who love money, Paul is not rebuking, he's not correcting the rich. He's gonna focus on them a little bit later in verse 17. Paul is not condemning wealth and possessions. We see throughout scripture there are men and women who, who have a lot of wealth, have a lot of, of possessions, and yet they don't allow those things to consume them or to control them. What Paul is warning and is writing about is to those who have an excessive desire to be rich. An excessive desire to be rich. In other words, Paul is speaking to those whose goal or, or desire is to accumulate. And I've met a lot of wealthy people who have not let money take their first love away. They've focused on Christ and they've, they've, they've gone through some of the things that we've, we've talked about. The desire to be rich, greed was one thing that Paul wants us to be very, very cautious about. Those who set their hearts on being rich, he says this, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruins and destruction. Philip Towner writes this, it is difficult to decide which is more dangerous. It is difficult to decide which is more dangerous, the love of money in a materialistic society or the Christian's rationalization for joining the chase. So listen to the natural progression here. The desire to be rich leads to temptation. That temptation, the obsession or the focus on riches. The temptation then leads to a snare or a trap, which is foolishness and harmful, sinful desires, and the end result of the love of money and excessive devotion to, to riches is ruins and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, verse 10 says this. And this passage is often misquoted. People say money is the root of all evil. No, it says the love of money. The love of money is, the ex is in the excessive desire to focus on um, providing um, satisfaction for our, our lives. A good way to read it is for evils of every kind are rooted in the love of money. And so John Stott, he gives us a good list of, of what those different various evils are. Extreme greed for wealth and material gain can lead to selfishness, cheating, fraud, lying, stealing, envy, fighting, hatred, Hatred, substance abuse, human trafficking, slavery, violence, murder, betrayal, mistreatment of the weak, neglect of good causes, and the list goes on and on and on. And yet Paul in this text, he gives us two examples. Two examples. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. He gives us two examples. It is through this craving that some have first wandered away from the faith, and second, pierced themselves with many pains. First, some have, who crave money, have wandered away from the faith. Have wandered away from the faith. I've seen this in real time. My past church, I remember someone showing up and they had a really nice car. And I was like, oh, he upgraded. It was a really nice car. And slowly but surely, they, they started taking trips and traveling and buying and acquiring more and stopped coming to church and stopped giving and stopped being in Christian community. Their community changed. 
It was like their favorite word was Jesus one day, and the next day, their favorite word was finances. Some have wandered away from the faith, Paul writes. The second is this, some have pierced themselves with many pains. So maybe, maybe we haven't lost faith, we haven't seen those lose their faith and wander away, but we've seen the pain, just the straight up pain that it brings. Griefs that it brings. Think about emptiness. The search for, for wealth, emptiness, exhaustion, disappointment, worry, remorse, broken relationships. It's one of the saddest things. What, whatever stage that you're at in life, it's one of the saddest things to recognize what you've been living for doesn't have any gain. And Paul urges us not just to treat the problem, but to tear it out, to remove it from our lives. So how do we escape the trap of loving God over love and money? Godliness, contentment, eternity, simplicity, and generosity. I don't know about you, but there's been areas in my life when it comes to money and stuff that I've wandered. I've chased after false love and security. There's sometimes in my life and those that I'm closest to, we've seen the results, the griefs of how we've incorrectly used our money. And so, Today, as we just focus in on this text, we recognize that while we might not always be faithful, that Jesus was faithful. He did not waver. He was faithful in in living and following the will of the Lord. Maybe you're experiencing all of a sudden being like, man, John, I'm, I'm with you. There's some areas in my life where I just blew it when it comes to money and possessions, when it comes to the riches and the gifts that we've been given. Recognize that Jesus has taken our guilt and our shame and now he's showing us what true worth and what true value is. In closing, I'd like to just read Proverbs 30, eight through nine. Maybe this week you just wanna spend some time reading Proverbs 30, eight through nine. Memorize it, read through it. Allow this to be a prayer for you this week. It says this, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Or I will be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or I will be poor and steal and profane profane the name of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that through him, Lord, we are to um, live differently. We pray that you will take this text, these five principles, and by your Holy Spirit, allow us to change, to be free, free to give, free to rest, Lord, free to enjoy the hope of knowing you, free to be content, free to to focus on your word and your gospel. Lord, I thank you so much for Jesus who has, who has provided everything that we need. So Lord, during this season, here in November and December, during the busyness, during the chaos of it, during the uncertainties of everything that 2020 has brought us, Lord, this past week, this past month, this past year, Lord, may our focus be on you. May our trust be on you. May our security be on you. We love you and we thank you, Lord, that we can just walk through, for some of us, a difficult passage. And uh, Lord, may you speak to us. 
May we have some practical ways of changing, Lord, this week, today, Lord, so that we can love you and that we can love others. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for this church family, for all you're doing here. We continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.